the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Okay, welcome to the Emancipation Nation. This week, I have a good friend of mine, attorney Sarah Ladd. And Sarah is a human trafficking child protection program coordinator at the Minnesota Department of Human Services. Her role is really to lead collaborative efforts to create a more effective and cohesive response to child trafficking victims through the child welfare system statewide. She's also a licensed attorney. She's been active in the anti-trafficking movement for nearly a decade and she has more than 15 years direct practice experience with victims of crime and human rights abuses. Since 2016, Sarah's been a part-time professor at the University of Toledo through the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute because we like to find those jewels and then try to multiply them by having them teach excellent courses like she does. So she teaches an online course called Human Trafficking and the Law. Prior to moving to Minnesota, Sarah founded and ran the Legal Aid of Western Ohio Human Trafficking Protection Project. And she's been an active member on the Lucas County Human Trafficking Coalition and the Northwest Ohio Rescue and Restore Coalition. She's published several articles. She's written numerous reports and policies on responses to sex and labor trafficking. She has a bachelor's degree from Calvin College that's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and a law degree from Michigan State's College of Law. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time. And we had a little bit of technical difficulty, so I thank you so much for hanging in there with me while we got it together. So I appreciate you. Absolutely, Celia. No problem at all. And thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast today. Yeah, so I wanted to really delve into what your journey was in the anti-trafficking movement. How did you get started to really where you are today, partnering with states and organizations and across the U.S., around the world? But how did you even get started? So um, I had kind of a, a long meandering route to get into the anti-trafficking movement, I would say. For many years, I did some international work in relief and development. I worked with child soldiers and refugee resettlement in various parts of Africa and also did work throughout Latin America with children who were living or working in the streets and with children who were vulnerable or at very high risk for exploitation and with children who had experienced significant sexual abuse. Wait, and Sarah, how did sure. you even do that? Like you are U.S. born and bred. How did you get to another country and even be doing that kind of work? You know, and I'm going to, that's a great question. And especially when I work with students, I get asked that question a lot. So I'm glad that you asked it. So it started for me in college. I did a couple of study abroad, and that was my first experience. I lived in Honduras. I did two study abroad programs there. That was where I first worked with children living in the streets and in inner city areas. 
And that was where I became fluent in Spanish. Once I spoke Spanish and had that experience, I was able to get into other opportunities. So that really opened the door for me. So then I subsequently applied and got funded for a summer fellowship program where I was paid to work in a slum near Sao Paulo, Brazil. And so that was my second experience still while I was in college and undergrad. So then from there, once... Once I had that experience, I was able to apply. I just started applying for jobs out of college. I knew I wanted to work overseas, and so I applied for tons of different positions, doing human rights work or international development, community development, aid work, relief work. And I ended up landing a paid position right out of college, working in Liberia, West Africa, with recently returned refugees and people in internally displaced persons camps as well as with a former female child soldier. Wow. So you really are doing the damn thing. Like you, you really are going anywhere in the world. I mean, how old were you when you started doing that? I turned 20 in Honduras. My first place that I lived overseas, I turned 20 while I was living there. Wow. And so, so then how did you get into the anti-trafficking field? So, you know, I I did all that work for many years and all over the place. And I kept feeling like I was up against a wall because I could, you know, I was working, you know, teaching children, starting schools, doing rehabilitation programs, all these different things, even, you know, working in mentoring programs. I did community center work, all that kind of thing. And it was wonderful, but... I always felt like at the end of the day, when I had a child or a a young person or an adult in front of me who was saying, this is the abuse that I'm enduring, this is what's going on with me, and the systems are letting this happen, my family is letting this happen, no one is protecting me, I just, there was nothing I could do. I could put a Band-Aid on it, bring them to a shelter, I could make a report to law enforcement or child protection, I could try and be a a kind and, and good person to listen listen to them and to connect them to resources and all of that. But then I couldn't do anything at all to stop what was happening to them. And so that was when I decided that I would go to law school. And it was right at that same time when I was living in Mozambique in Southern Africa that I was hearing a lot about human trafficking. I lived close to the border with South Africa, and I was there during the the World Cup. And so there was lots of conversation about, you know, this thing called trafficking. And so I just started to hear the term and started to do my own research. And I quickly found out that so many of the different situations, it was like that aha moment that you probably had at one point as well, Celia, and that so so many of us in the movement have had where it's all of a sudden you realize that all these people that you've been working with all these years were victims of trafficking. And it's like all the time that I had been working with them, you know, I was thinking, okay, I mean, I'm a domestic violence advocate right now and I'm seeing this, but it's just, you know, it's not, it's more than that. It is domestic violence, but it's something more, or this is child sexual abuse. And it is that, but it feels like something more. And so it was an aha moment for me when I was living overseas that, wait a minute, that's what this is called. When the child that I was mentoring when she was 11 years old and she was talking about living with this older man and talking about her mom selling her in exchange for cocaine. That was trafficking, and I never knew it all those years. And so those two things added up together for me, and I decided that I would go to law school so that, A, I would actually be able to do something when there was abuse, when there was something happening where someone was being hurt. I would be able to do something more than kind of a temporary solution. 
but also I would be able to help connect these dots and create a better system so that individuals experiencing trafficking ideally wouldn't have to go through that or that, that I could be part of helping to stop that for them. And so how did you get, has your personality always been like, you know, it's needed, I'm going to go get it? Or how did you reconcile, how did you get the confidence? If my mom were here, she would say, she would tell the story about when I was in first grade and I, I was on the honor roll in first grade. I don't know why there was an honor roll in first grade at the school that I went to. But anyway, they gave me an award in first grade for initiative. I got the initiative award. in first grade or whatever they were exactly (laughs) right and so so you went to law school you applied you got in law school and then how difficult was law school oh my goodness law school so especially the first semester they call it 1l your 1l year first year of law school that is brutal it's really an adjustment I went to law school immediately after I came back from living in Mozambique. And so I had experienced a different type of difficulty. And so I felt like, hey, you know what, whatever, I can handle it. Uh, it, It's not going to be that bad. It was a little bit challenging. But I felt like by the the second semester, I got the hang of it. And actually, right away, so I went to law school only with the purpose of advocating for trafficking victims. And so as I went through, this is advice to any law students or would-be law students out there, as I went through even my first year, my first semester of classes, I was listening for and looking for, what does this have to do with trafficking law? How could this impact a survivor of trafficking, whether it was contract class or property law or civil procedure. That was a stretch. That was a little bit of a stretch, but I found some connection. And, you know, or constitutional law, right? Where did our trafficking laws come from? What, what's the basis? Oh, there's this 13th Amendment. And actually, it's cited at the beginning of our federal trafficking laws. And that's the or that was the authorization for them to constitutional authorization for them to make those laws. So, you know, that helped me get through it because I really saw a very specific purpose in everything that I was learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I did with my PhD, try to relate it all to trafficking. And so was there an incredible amount of reading? I'm asking this because there may be advocates out there that are thinking, okay, law school is the way I want to enter my anti-trafficking advocacy. What should you do to prepare if you want to go to law school to do any kind of advocacy? You know, things that I would say. One is it really is a lot of hard work and you really have to go in with a plan for how you're going to stay on top of all of it. I really did a lot of, I just decided I was single at the time and I was in, you know, not living near my family or anyone. I just had my little my little bubble. And I basically, other than participating, being very active in the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force while I was in law school, other than that, I really just super structured my life. So I did, you know, yoga every morning. I got up at a certain time and had my quiet time and coffee. And then I would study from this time to this time. And then I would, you know, it was 
I made it hyper-structured so that I could just focus all of my time on the reading and the things that I needed to do. The other thing that really is important in law school is know why you're going to law school and base your decisions around it. So I knew I wanted to advocate for trafficking victims. So I said, okay, what are all the different things within law school that will prepare me to do that? So I decided to do, I took a few human rights courses. I decided to do internships that were really specific to trafficking and to skills that I would need if I was going to be advocating for trafficking survivors. And then I also did a lot of law school clinical programs. So those things were more valuable to me, being in the immigration law clinic for three semesters and interning at the U.S. Department of Justice twice. Those were more valuable to me than doing like moot court or trial advocacy or things of that nature because they weren't as related to what I thought I would do as an advocate for trafficking survivors. Yeah, so I I see like you really pointed your arrow directly at the target and then went straight for that. Because a lot of times I hear students say, well, I want to open a group home for Mm -hmm. survivors. So I am getting my bachelor's degree in women and gender studies. And I'm like, okay, what... (laughs) Your arrow is kind of pointing in a different direction. Like you're going to go around the house. So why are we doing that? And some people don't know what they're going to do yet, but people who want to definitely be human trafficking advocates or any type of social justice advocates should try to point their arrow directly in that direction. And so definitely. And so you graduate law school, you said you were doing internships. When did it feel like you were starting to make a difference? You know, I um, already in my first year of law school, I joined the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force. And that was an incredible experience for me. I actually partnered, worked really closely with the Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force to start a student organization, which at the law school, to get law students and other legal professionals in the community involved in the anti-trafficking movement. So I started that at my school and just even that, then connecting with, you know, the the FBI agent who was on the task force and the victim service providers and all the different folks that I was working with in the task force environment, I was able to help make those connections. So really to help a lot of other law students get involved and decide that they wanted to point their career in that direction as well. And so I felt pretty early on in my first year of law school, like I was making an impact with that. And then I decided also my first year, I um, applied for my very first internship summer after that year, I went and worked for International Justice Mission in La Paz, Bolivia, and I was a legal intern for them. So I worked with child survivors of child sex trafficking and also worked with kids who were who had been sexually exploited through pornography or child sexual abuse or that kind of thing. So I was very involved, I would say pretty early in my legal career. And so were these, when you went to Michigan, that task force, were people receptive to you? Did you just show up and go, hey, hello, I'd like to sit in on a meeting, join? How do people get involved in things like that? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the biggest advice that I could give to anyone is if you want to be involved in the anti-trafficking movement, go to the task force or coalition or network or whatever they call it in your area and just show up and offer what you can offer. 
And you don't have to be an expert to walk through that door. You don't have to know exactly what you want to do. You don't have, you don't even have to know exactly what they do. Don't try to start something on your own. Really be part of the coalition or task force or network that is collaboratively working on this issue. So yeah, I just showed up, found them online. I just went to the first meeting, introduced myself to the chairperson, Jane, Jane White is her name, um, introduced myself to her at the end. And she just welcomed me into the fold. Hey, do you want to be on a subcommittee? Hey, we need somebody in this capacity. And I was, you know, I was a law student. So I'm like, hey, I'm really good at reading things and taking notes. I'll be the secretary. Yeah, you knew sort of what your strengths were. You came to the coalition, not telling them what they need to do, but you came to the coalition actually offering your best self and those skills that you had and they embraced you. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. Then how did you end up at Legal Aid of Western Ohio? Well, so I was very fortunate in law school for a few different reasons. First, I was part of the immigration law clinic at my law school, and the the professor who directed it was, uh, it is still, David Bronson, really an expert in not only immigration law and the impact that immigration law has on children, but also had done a lot of work with trafficking and his previous position in Nevada, and so had helped to start some anti-trafficking um, task forces and provide legal services for foreign national trafficking victims there. And so he also was a foreign, a Skadden fellow through the Skadden Fellowship Foundation. And that was how he got into this work initially. And so when I first met him at the beginning of my second year of law school, he said to me, he became my advisor and he said to me, Sarah, if you want to advocate for trafficking survivors, you need to aim your law career towards getting a Skadden Fellowship because you will be able to create your dream job. You will be able to do whatever you want to help trafficking survivors and they will fund you to do it. And it's, it's really the best way to, it's the Cadillac way to get into the, the area that you want to be in and to have your dream job right out of law school. And so he pointed me in that direction and kind of helped me to make choices about internships and classes and all manner of different things so that by the time I got to my third year of law school, I applied for a Skadden Fellowship, and I received it. And I was, it's typically, Skadden Fellowships are an amazing opportunity if you are a law student and you want to do public interest work and you are committed to public interest, free legal services, and have a passion and experience in a particular area, a particular uh, type of services for an underserved population, I highly recommend that you inquire early and that you really start trying to build the type of experience that you need to get a Skadden Fellowship. So I did, I got, a, I received a Skadden Fellowship and was able to start the Human Trafficking Protection Project at Legal Aid of Western Ohio. I was the first person to get a Skadden Fellowship from Michigan State uh, Law School and the first person, the first Skadden Fellow at Legal Aid as well. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah, and I got to create it however I wanted. So that is so cool. And I know that you work directly with victims and you also created this really cool document. Do you remember that? Um, you put the framework. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm sure you uh -huh. put hours and days and months and describe kind of what that is, because I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So I I had a because I got to create this myself, I had a very multifaceted type of project that I was that I was running. So 
We did a lot of outreach and training and kind of community organizing around trafficking to try and create coordinated systems of response. And Celia, you and I talked a lot about this over the years of like, how do, how do we improve the coordination? How do we have it more centralized? Or, you know, how do we, how do we think about this in a way that we're going to fill the most gaps and we're going to really reduce the barriers for individual survivors to get what they need? And so... In addition to that, I was providing direct legal representation also in all kinds of civil matters, so not criminal cases, but civil types of cases for victims and survivors um, who were children or adults, sex or labor trafficking victims. And through all of that, I realized a couple of things. One, I realized that in many, many parts of the, I covered 32 counties in Ohio, so I saw what a lot of how, how a lot of different areas were working with trafficking survivors. And I saw that there wasn't a lot of coordination between between law enforcement and service providers, between um, shelter providers and legal services. You know, people weren't all on the same page. And so I started to see a need not only for training, but really for protocol. How do what's our response going to be ahead of time, proactively? How can we put into effect both the laws that exist that, that we are governed by at the state or federal and federal level, but also how do we put into practice the best practices? How do we make it actually work for an individual victim that is identified? And so we created, we got some funding through actually through the Women's Giving Circle of Defiance. They gave us a small grant and in, in Northwest Ohio, and we started working with, we started working to create a human trafficking response protocol that was based off of the already existing domestic violence response protocol. So we looked at all the laws, we, we talked to people, we went and really, you know, kind of based on all the, the practice that we had been doing, put together what would, what would it look like to have a, in the same format as the existing protocol within, what would it look like to have this comprehensive response at the county level for sex yeah. or labor trafficking? I think that's the genius in it because you really use something that was already existing. People kind of are familiar with it. You're just replacing it with this population, you know, altering yeah. it to fit this population. But you kind of mm -hmm. are using something that people are already sort of used to rallying around or how they went about their work or did their practice. And so I thought that was amazing. I love that document. Is that document still available? It sure is. Yeah, it definitely is. And I know it is actually, I have to give credit. I had a phenomenal team during my, my three years, two years full-time. And then one year I contracted with legal aid after I left Ohio. I had an incredible team. I had 11 different people who volunteered many, many, many hours of their time to work with me in the office to do all these things. So in particular on the protocol project, um, I had two volunteers who spent hundreds of hours unpaid working with me to write and edit and revise and develop this protocol document. And still today, now one of them, um, Jennifer Wedge, now works for, for Legal Aid and ABLE and is doing, uh, is working on still putting this into effect in Defiance County. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that document, it doesn't it outline exactly what each player should do what a prosecutor should yes. do, what, you know, a judge yes, might yes. do. Yeah. So yep. where can people get that document? Is that, if that's still available? 
Sure. The best thing, so that is not a, it is available and I will, I would gladly email it to people if they would like to see it. It is not something that has been published on a website at this point that I know of, but I would gladly send it. And we have sent it to a number of different states and counties around the U.S. Good. I want to make sure that we get your contact information. Yep, absolutely. So feel free to email me directly. I can connect you with any of the things that we have talked about today. And my email address is just my name, Sarah, with an H dot lad, L-A-D-D, at state.mn.us. And please, please do feel free to contact me. I would be happy to speak with anyone or to send you resources or help you connect if you're trying to get connected with the anti-trafficking movement or with any of the things that I have mentioned today. Thank you so much, Sarah, and continue to do the fabulous work that you've been doing. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Celia. The unsinkable Sarah Ladd, navigating those hostile waters in the name of change. Ships are safe in the harbor, but ships weren't built for the harbor. They were built to weather the storm and navigate rough waters. And if the journeymen worthy and the effort noble and all hands on deck for the worthy cause, they will see the lighthouse, the symbol of safety. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.